people work together, they can build bigger, better things. You can't build a AAA game with one person. As creatively gratifying as it is to just be the sole author of a game, if you want to really build something huge and internationally impressive, you need a lot of people involved. This is Inside Indie Games. Join us behind the scenes to see what it takes to create a great indie company and to craft the games that people long to play. Tom Beardsmore is the CEO and co-founder of CoatSync, a UK-based game dev and publisher. CoatSync were formed in 2009, but Tom had actually known his co-founder, Paul Crabb, since they were about 12 years old. Today, they've grown into a company with almost 70 employees and work on a number of impressive projects, including developing their own IP for Oculus Studios. Tom's first real job in the world of games started back in 2007, though, when he worked as a games master for Blizzard. Naturally, I was curious to find out what that entailed. I think I was under NDA about talking about this, but I don't know if it, if that's still the case. But basically, it was like... Um, the, the cool way of viewing it is like it, it, it was it was like being Neo in the Matrix. <laughs> uh, so you you basically had a a uh, yeah like a um, a, a kind of god character that you could play as on any server in the game, and you would travel around trying to fix bugs for players because uh, this was pre relaunch of Battle.net. So I think they, I think things have changed. I don't know because I, I left long before that. That, that ha- uh, they relaunched uh, Battle.net. But um, at the time, there was a lot of uh, funny ways of fixing bugs, which involved actually going into servers and and using kind of a command console to uh, to to remove you know frozen characters and stuff yeah. like that. I, yeah, I, I think uh, yeah, that's probably about as as much as I can say. But it was <laughs> it was fun. It was surprisingly fun. Um, it just got to a point. Yeah, it just got to a point where I realised I wanted to have full creative control of uh, what I was doing in games. And although you can work up the ranks, of course, at a a, uh, huge company like Blizzard, it would take a lifetime to get into, or it could take a lifetime to get into a position where you really had creative input into these uh, titles. I'd imagine, yeah. But at the Mm. time, I mean, that must have been, Mm. yeah, like you say, that must have been a really fun role to basically be a, Mm. a steward in the game almost and walking about yeah, and somebody, pretty, yeah, somebody's was, stuck inside was, a wall or something and you just get to lift them out and exactly <laughs> you just lift them out you use your neo powers you bend the matrix <laughs> to your will yeah it was uh it was pretty fun yeah that was the funnest part of it anyway yeah. yes yeah so towards your end of the, the end of your time at blizzard can you can you remember that thought process then you say you wanted to get a bit more creative mm. control what was your, did you right away think the way to get that was to run your own company? I guess the thought process at the time was, I think I had a, a few conversations with uh, Paul um, and he was, he knew that the company he was working at, which was a sort of double A sized uh, company in the industry was coming to an end. The, that entire company actually went uh, defunct. Um and I think we talked about what, when they, you know, it, what we could do together if it was just the two of us, basically starting from scratch. Because even if you work at a large game studio, because of the scale of the operations at those studios, you really, 
I mean, I'm just talking from mine and Paul's experience, but you really don't know how to individually make a game because you're just performing a small task on a huge game. Uh, you're a small cog in a, in a, in a huge machine, a, a AAA game studio. So going from that to building your own game from scratch, and then you have to start thinking, you know, you think about it from the ground up and you think about uh, market, everything all the way up to marketing and, and storefront stuff and um, taking it to shows and so forth. That is a huge undertaking for yeah. uh, uh, compared to just being a, performing a single task on a on a large game yeah um so but we talked about how we would do it and how we could go about it with just the two of us and it was actually at the time that um uh touchscreen phones were taking off with the iphone i think it was the at the time the new one was the 3gs if i remember correctly but uh we thought okay well let's try and make a phone game so I came back to the UK. Paul was already here. We basically got onto a fellowship scheme, which was effectively grant funding and uh, sort of uh, business coaching provided by Teesside University, I think with ERDF money mm-hmm. um, that gave us a, a small amount of uh, grant funding, enough to basically live for six months while we produced a what was intended to be a prototype but ended up being almost a full game for mobile just it was horrendous looking because i was responsible for the art so of course it was horrendous looking i'm not an artist i just picked it up in those six months and tried to make something functional um but paul is a very good puzzle designer and this was a puzzle game called pinch and uh, although it didn't make us a it didn't make us millions and millions which no matter what indie, what no matter what you hear from uh, indie teams, that very rarely happens. Probably one in ten thousand. Um, it did get us a lot of attention. We got uh, something like forty reviews across all types of media because at the time, mobile games were the thing that everybody was interested in, um, and the game got very very well reviewed. I remember we got like a nine out of 10 in Eurogamer or something like that. And and I think we ended up with the, yeah. So it, even though everybody was like, oh, this looks trash visually, but it's actually pretty well designed yeah, and fun yeah. to play and interesting and, and unique at the time, you know, using pinch to grab and, um, and, and, and it, just using that sort of multi-touch uh, interface on a, on a mobile phone was unique and interesting. Yeah. So yeah, it got us attention and we ended up, we picked up some, uh, small bits of work for hire to sort of bootstrap ourselves then we developed a second version of the pit of uh, this game pinch um that one did a little bit better we ended up putting that on multiple platforms we got a publishing deal we sold the pinch ip or to a uh, much bigger mobile publisher called miniclip and then we um we went from there but that was how we that was how we started anyway there was plenty in there that I wanted to pick Tom's brains about. But again, funding is certainly something that's of interest to a lot of indie games developers. So I wanted to find out if he had any advice for folks in a similar boat as they were back then. I would always look at the universities local to you first, especially especially those that you graduated from and especially if you graduated uh, in a, within a reasonable time frame. I think maybe look for stuff that's not necessarily specifically for games as well. I think a lot of people in the who are starting in the games industry or want to get into the games industry or even the uh, veterans look for specific game industry funding. And there is a lot of business startup funding available that might be 
easier to get and might be more money than uh, what's available in the industry. Did you take much in the way of business advice back then? Yeah, a lot. Primarily through free seminar or seminars that were provided as part of the fellowship or similar kind of things. There was a lot of, uh, I remember we attended a, a council run business workshop series that was something like like six workshops that got us through to the point of kind of understanding how to register a business. Um, but the, I mean, a lot of it, you, it takes years to learn. You can just hope to kind of understand the fun, fundamentals within, uh, through the through seminars and start to learn how, you know, the importance of accounting and, and um, all that kind of stuff yeah. early on, but you won't fully understand it, fully comprehend it for years. Back to actually making games, I mentioned that Coatsync had done a fair bit of work with Oculus over the years. I wanted to find out how they first got into that technology. I think in 2013, when the Oculus Rift was still, was first a Kickstarter, on Kickstarter, we um, backed it, uh, to whatever the highest tier was, because we've always been really interested in new technology. Uh, I guess it kind of worked for us with mobile getting us into the industry yeah. uh, or getting us started in the industry so as soon as we saw vr we were like oh this is awesome so we uh we backed that we we joined the various um uh, sort of indie um games kind of forums and stuff for for, uh, for specifically for oculus but for vr in general as well um and we started prototyping stuff uh and then in i think i think it was mid to Early to mid uh, 2014, um, uh, a friend of mine who started working at Oculus a few months prior um, came to me and, and asked if we had he'd seen our prototypes. And he said, oh, do we have any other ideas for games? Because they, Oculus were interested in funding a couple of small titles. And that was all the information we were given. So we, we said, yeah, okay, here's a, here's a few ideas. Uh, it was a small budget uh, kind of stuff, but it was amazing to think that we would actually get funding for a VR game. Um, so we, we pitched a few ideas, and and um, they picked up on one particularly and decided to fund us, which was amazing. Um, it, um, that game became Esper, which was, it was our very first full 3D game. Um, and our uh, very first commercial VR game. Uh, it's a it's a, pu- a first person puzzle game. It's kind of like a um, a blend of uh, it all ha- takes place in a single room. The idea is that you have ESP, so you have uh, uh, basically um, Professor X powers, um, and you're being tested by the government to uh, see if you have adequate control of these powers to be allowed to venture outside into the public dem- sure. domain. Yeah. So it all takes place in a single room. You're being tested with effectively puzzles to see how you can control them. So you're, lo- you're mm-hmm. looking around and then you're using your gaze-based uh, control scheme to pick objects up and move them around. And then eventually it, gets, it escalates and you end up destroying the room and you try and break out of the facility and stuff, but it was it, it kind of plays like a bit of a mixture of with unique uh, mechanics, but a bit of a mixture of like Portal and Stanley Parable, because okay. you always have this the voice of the uh, of your kind of coach um, playing over um, loudspeaker. Yeah, yeah. In the room with you. Okay. So uh, 
yeah, it, uh, it anyway ended up going down really, really well. I think it was the top review game on the first edition of the Gear VR. Uh, I think what they call that. It was like the developer edition of the Gear VR that they launched a year or so before the yeah. commercial release. Um, so it was then a launch uh, launch title on the commercial release of the Gear VR and a launch title on the Rift. But anyway, this is the the kind of positive response we got from that game led to um, Oculus after they were acquired by Facebook and subsequent budgets went budgets went through the roof yeah. and uh, the pro- type of projects they they took us. Uh, they they funded us on the next game, which was Esper Two, and then on the next game, which was a, a kind of um, experience that I think called a night sky and then the next game which was an rpg called augmented empire and each time the size of these games was so we went from like five people working on esper to 20 on esper 2 to i think uh, night sky was a slightly smaller team but it's about 10 people working on that and then augmented empire was 30 to 40 and now the newest one that we're working on is 40 to 50 but it's been a longer development cycle yeah yeah um so yeah they've they've, (laughs) yeah it's been it but it's been amazing because every time it's been our own ip with obviously a huge amount of input from the uh, oculus studios team um because their experience and uh their patience with us they're yeah (laughs) so that's that's kind of been a the that that kind of process has been a huge learning experience for us um and also amazingly rewarding for the whole team. What do you think it was that put you in that position at the start to be, you know, to get that original funding that put you on that path? I think it was um, a mixture of um, the effort that we put into the prototypes that we had at the time and perhaps people seeing some potential in our team at the time. Because at the mm-hmm. time, I think we were only about 10 people. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, about 10 people when we were working on Esper, the first one. So it was it was partly that buying that development kit and just experimenting really buying the development kit and also of course the people like the, the chap I mentioned who came came to us with the potential just taking the chance on us yeah. um, and then the Oculus Studios team taking the chance on us um, it's a, a mixture of luck kind people in those sort of production positions and uh, some to some degree I guess our um, ability or our commitment to deliver uh quality products yeah because we're we're, that's our uh, you know always our main goal we we don't ever really want to release a game that's not uh up to our uh like something that we would want to play yes yeah what what um type of input specifically did oculus give you the oculus team it kind of it's increased over the projects i guess so the scale of the projects they've had more input more people to um taking interest in what we were doing at facebook and oculus in general i guess but um they 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 effectively just provide production qa creative kind of input similar to um to any games publishing deal i guess you would submit you submit a milestone you get feedback back and Certainly, in in our experience, that feedback is unbelievably helpful because it's obviously from equally passionate people, passionate games people, um, but much more experienced games people than we are. So they they're they're providing invaluable uh, advice on how to improve the product. And so they shape it as much as we do, really. Yeah, yeah, excellent. It seems like from what I know of your um, your timeline, it seems like that partnership 
type element has been quite important to you. You mentioned the idea of the fact that your studio is quite heavily involved in many other partnerships as well. Can you, what was the, um, can you tell us about the sort of, the start of, I think it was Kingdom 2 Crowns, you said was one of the big projects you've worked on in that sense. That's, yeah, that one is actually a, um, a current project. So that's that's uh, only been going on, I guess, for the last ah, six to nine months. Yeah, sure. yeah um, I would say that the, the non-VR stuff started just before the VR stuff. So I think at the end of 20, 2013, um, I went to Eurogamer Expo when it was still at Earl's Court in London. Mm-hmm. And um, I, f- I basically forced my way into a meeting, not forced, I was, but pestered a guy to meet me uh, from Sony London, um, who at the time he was a part of the uh, a team called Strategic Content, who uh, were effectively like an indie publishing unit at um, PlayStation, provided funding for smaller projects, for prim- primarily for PlayStation Vita, but also for PS4. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, met, I managed to get a meeting with him outside on the steps of Earl's Court, showed him... Um, a couple of projects on the steps there and we ended up getting funding for a game called shoe right at the so this was right at the end of 2013 um and that game um was our first it wasn't full 3d so like i said espo is the first 3d game that we've developed but uh, it was uh 2.5d through so 3d environments 2d characters but on a sort of flat plane i guess in the same way as like little big planets play yes, yeah uh, side scroller yeah so that um that was a pretty small project funding wise again at the time for us it was huge but um yeah it um but that game even that game so take taking uh playstation out of the equation that actually that game shoe started as a partnership as well so that mm-hmm. game was originally uh, the original prototype was created by a, a team called Secret Lunch, who were from or were from Dundee. They went to Abate University, and uh, we met with them as part of because we were on the same uh, Abate prototype fund round as they were, and um, we met with them and decided to co-develop it effectively. Um, it started as a more of a publishing deal, but it became a co-development between us both. And then now um, their team, I think most of their team is dispersed, but sure. their artist now works at Coating. Okay. So uh, it, was, it was only a three-man team, their team. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. But yeah, that ended up, that were that was really good for us, that, that project. It kind of, that was like a proving ground for us that we could deliver a, uh, a game for console. So... That um, that sort of told the early story. Moving on to now, where I found it really interesting when you were talking about the idea of taking over existing games, something that um, must be a really interesting experience. You know, working on a previous code base, working with existing developers. What was the what was the first game that you worked on in that um, capacity? Yeah. Um- well, it's in most cases they're almost like more like partnerships, and certainly in yeah. the early ones they were. But to, um, it, the first one, the first project that kind of worked like that for us uh, was Gang Beasts, and that's we started on that. I believe it was September 2015. Um, we partnered with the creators Bone Loaf uh, and the publishers Double Fine to um, 
to, to basically add uh, the initial idea was to create a VR version of the game, which required a network multiplayer version of the game because, of course, you can't have couch co-op with a VR headset. Um, so we did that, and then we rolled the network multiplayer mode over to Steam, and that kind of made the game explode uh, in popularity. It just, uh, the, re- the realities of, of having four to eight players on a couch, uh, it's a pretty rare thing. Yeah. Um, so these couch co-op games really do benefit from network multiplayer. So that meant that we, we built our own matchmaker, cross-platform ma- matchmaker, and uh, sort of learned how to network from scratch, um, and it, the, networking a, a game uh, certainly in, in terms of indie doesn't get much tougher than Gang Beast because of all the uh, the, the physics in that game. Sure. Um, it's a complex thing to network. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't have to do it. Much smarter people did it. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the, yeah, one of whom is uh, one of the shareholders in Codesync, a guy called Cylonder, who fortunately is a genius and somehow managed to make it happen, um, <laughs> along with the, the help of several of our amazing coders. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Mean- so we we t- kind of took that that networking experience and then we've we've uh, applied it to several other titles since, and then partnered mm-hmm. on several other titles. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned you've been quite heavily involved in the growth of some of these games as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of Gang Beasts, it's, uh, it's success. Um, yeah, uh, has been, it was obviously, it was already a very successful game when we started working on it with Bone Loaf in, at the end of uh, 2015. But then when we launched the network multiplayer, it's uh, success really exploded. It was, uh, pretty incredible i think within a few months of launching the network multiplayer it had um uh kind of made more in those few months than it had in the year and a half prior yeah yeah uh, in terms of return so that was amazingly gratifying for everybody involved in that game yeah uh it's really hard work um developing something like that but uh, just because it's such a it's such a genius game that requires a equally genius solution to provide networking to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think that's an opening in the indie games industry for fledgling companies to, to spot games that are already doing well, but to spot a way where it can reach a wider audience, can become more accessible? Uh, is, that, is that something that a fledgling company could do and approach an existing developer to talk about? Yeah, I think so. I think... I think the more that people work together, you know, it's like anything. People work together, they can build bigger, better things. Um, you can't build a AAA game with one person. Uh, as creatively gratifying as it is to just be the sole author of a game, uh, if you want to really build something huge and, and internationally impressive, you need a lot of people involved. Um, it's... Um, Certainly in games, at least. Games and film and TV, it's just, it's more than a one-man thing. Uh, whenever people try and give me credit for uh, a single project that we've been involved in, I just, yeah, I uh, can't help but laugh a little bit because <laughs> I couldn't be probably less re- solely responsible for it. All I do is help facilitate as a uh, manager of the company, I guess. 
Tom has obviously come a long way in his career to get to where he is now, but like any successful person, he's sure to have made a lot of mistakes along the way. And that's mistakes that you yourself could potentially learn from in your own journey. So what are some of the things he wished he knew when he was just starting out? I guess I'd, I wish I could have known to not stress too much because the effort pays off. Because you do spend a lot of time on the journey. And I will continue to spend a lot of time doing this, I suspect. Because uh, it's already grown 10 times more than I ever expected it would. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'd known on the, you know, just not to stress too much along the way. Because as long as you put in the effort in, then things will work out in the long run. And if you, as long as you have the right attitude and you're not kind of just chasing money in this industry, yeah. then the, it kind of, the, the money comes as like a side effect of the passion and the creativity rather than, you know, if you just chase the money, often that backfires. Right. In my experience, I've seen a lot of people who are just looking for, oh, we just want funding to kind of do this and and, and that. And I think if you spend time actually creating, um, the the money will come as a side effect. Is there anything else you think new companies do wrong in their their first year or two? I think we probably did everything wrong in the first (laughs) year or two, so I I wouldn't like to criticise. I guess I know some new companies don't get an accountant early enough. And that can lead to issues. Sure. Uh, obviously, you can end up. We, this didn't. We didn't do this, but I know some guys who've, who've not got their accounting in order until yeah, it's yeah. a bit too late. Yeah. And especially if they have a runaway success of a game, um, they can end up getting fined yeah, and yeah. whatnot by HMRC. Yeah. What about? So you say you did all the things wrong. <laughs> what was? What do you think was your biggest mistake in the early years? I suppose in in some cases. Uh, so when, where I mentioned people who chase the money, there was a couple of times where there was time, there was projects that we weren't so sure whether we wanted to take on. And I mean, really early now, I, th- I think probably like 2011 to 2012 was where we were making this mistake because as a result of pinch being relatively widely known and, and even though it wasn't, you know, multi-million success, um, it kind of made, made us kind of snap up too many effectively, work for hire or limited creative input yeah. uh, projects for mobile. Mm-hmm. And that that was like a, a bit of a mistake because even though we got them all done, they were a bloody headache. And yeah, I, I think you, you, you typically, my experience has taught me that those smaller projects with smaller budgets are usually a bigger headache than the ones with larger budgets because typically when somebody can't afford to spend that much money on a project they're going to be more finicky about contractual obligations and milestones and and often find ways in, in some cases not to pay you because you know they want to just you know say you know they don't have the money to pay you really yeah. So, you know, just just being cautious in those first few years. I think it's I think the, the the benefit that Paul and I had is we didn't have any at the time we didn't have families, we didn't have uh, obligations like that. We were able to live really cheaply. Um, so we didn't have to take too many of those deals. But I've seen a lot of people take things like like those kind of projects, but also investment. You know, taking take just somebody will offer them fifty thousand for thirty percent or fifty percent of their company, and it's just 
almost invariably led to collapse in right. my experience okay. it's it, you know it's because then you've got another party involved who in most most cases doesn't know anything about the industry yeah. uh yes. kind of kind of trying to push you down paths and asking questions that don't really need to be asked and yeah. uh yeah where's next for you guys then uh we just we want to continue the way we're going at the moment we're really enjoying all of the projects that we're working on um we're having increased success uh in vr and out of vr we're just really loving being able to create ip and innovate thanks for listening to the first season of inside indie games and i've got just one ask for you just now Find us on Twitter at UK Games Fund and tell us who you want to hear on a future episode. We'll do our best to track them down and bring them on. And if you want to find out more about us too, hop over to ukgamesfund.com. See you on the next episode.